Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded on Friday, April 13th, 2018, here in Seoul, Korea. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today, I am joined by Teresa Novotna here in the studio. Teresa is currently a Korea Foundation Fellow and Visiting Professor at the EU Center at Seoul National University, as well as an academic collaborator with the Department of International Relations at the Institute for European Studies, Université Libre de Bruxelles, and a Senior Associate Research Fellow at European, which is a Prague-based think tank with a branch in Brussels. Don't forget, listeners, that you can download or subscribe to our podcast not only at iTunes, but also at Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and all other good podcast platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. So let's get right into it, Teresa. How did you first get interested in North Korea and questions of Korean unification? Well, I uh, actually originally was interested in the unifications in Europe. So my my doctorate work was uh, comparing, contrasting the unification of Germany with the EU unification. So that is EU enlargement. And then you know, I started thinking, well, where else I could actually use my uh, research findings and uh, Korean Peninsula was uh, the obvious case. North Korea especially is a country where you actually need to see it with your own eyes. It uh, convinced me that I made the right choice and I hope to go back again probably this year sometime soon. Now, you said that you were interested in other areas of unification, beginning with you know, German unification and then looking at other areas. I remember in the early 2000s, there was a couple of books about comparing the Korean unification or possible future Korean unification to uh, not only Germany, but also Vietnam and Yemen. In the early 2000s, they were the three key examples that people pointed to. Now, Yemen, as we know, in the last few years uh, has been a a counterexample, hasn't it? Right, indeed. Uh, Actually, I remember that one of my uh, supervisors always pointed out that Yemen is the right example. I don't think he would say that anymore. In fact, you wonder whether it'll last much longer as one country. Will it split up again into two? Will we see maybe a process of unification and then ununification? I mean, I know that's not your specialty, but I'm just speculating here. You know, to some extent, if you look at Europe at uh, at the moment, it's also an example of unification. I mean, Mm -hmm. the enlargement is uh, ongoing uh, to Western Balkans and other countries, but also because you have one big country, uh, Great Britain, leaving. So this is kind of disunification as well. Yeah, and I think that reminds me that it's it's very important to remember that unification is not the end of a process. It's the beginning of another process, isn't it? That in South Korea, often we hear unification as, uh, or even in North Korea, as this is almost the end of history for Korea. You know, that we're looking for this goal, we want to unify, and once that happens, everything will be fine and we will live happily ever after. But as we saw in Europe, as we see in Yemen, it's the beginning of another process which brings its own problems and challenges and issues. Totally. Um, in fact, you know, in, in, in my book, which was on German and European uh, unification, I argued that actually the long-term consequences of the German case, or how I call it there, a transplantation case, are actually not that great. So if you look into uh, models for unification, you should probably look at the German model, but rather uh, at the European model. And also, of course, let's think about your home country. I mean, you're from Czech Republic or Czechia. Which do you prefer? (laughs) 
uh, I'm open to both. <laughs> okay. Now, it was once united with Slovakia into a one, you know, a Czechoslovakian country, which then became disunited into two. Do you do you see that as being a relevant example as well? Yes, and actually, uh, there is an additional layer where you can say that both the Czech and Slovak republics are now members of the EU, and actually, yeah. the relations between them have never been better than huh. that. So, in a way, you have dissolution at the same time with integration. Yeah. Uh, in the end, uh, you know, we can say that we are happily ever after as two separate countries. Right. That's it. It's very interesting. Tell us about your original PhD research work. What was it all about? Well, I was looking at mainly the processes of negotiations in the two cases, the German unification and EU enlargement. And I was looking quite in detail into the Czech accession to the EU. My point was to find out, you know, how much impact the Eastern actors always had the on, on the outcome. So, you know, if you were to think about the uh, Korean case and if there is any uh, unification negotiations going on, you know, how much that North Koreans would actually have any impact on the negotiations as such and also what consequences it would bring. Now, I'm not an expert in German unification, but I've read a little bit about it. And what I recall is that it happened so quickly. It almost seemed like both sides didn't have enough time to get their act together before suddenly, you know, they were unified. So this Speed was definitely one of the big uh, aspects of the way in which the Germany unified, but actually it wasn't preordained it will be so quick. At the beginning, the uh, Lothar de Mezier, who was at the time an East German prime minister, he actually thought, well, you know, in 1992, maybe we may have one unified team for the Olympics. And that was at the time three, four years ahead. So right. it wasn't at all clear that it would go so quickly that the two countries would unify within less than a year. That's right. It was really the, the, the people who forced the issue, wasn't it? That the leaders, I think, wanted to take a bit more time and, and sort these issues out. Things were moving so quickly on the ground. People from East Germany were moving around, leaving their workplaces, leaving their homes, going to West Germany, looking for a better life, that everything was forced to go a bit faster. Yes, that's, that's def definitely true. Uh, the force of the street was definitely there. But we shouldn't also forget the role of uh, Helmut Kohl, uh, yeah. the West German Chancellor at the time, who, you know, was quite keen on winning uh, the West German elections, which were scheduled at the end of uh, the 1990. And he ah. thought, well, you know, what's the better way of winning elections than to be the uh, father of the unified Germany, right? He was also the one who was quite keen on uh, pushing things ahead. So we shouldn't forget, it's not just the masses which influence the processes, but it's also the individual actors, the individual leaders, politicians who are in charge. But also, as you've just hinted at here, it is election cycles. No matter who the actors are, the leaders of any democratic nation are always going to be aware at some level in the back of their mind or in the front of their mind, one or two or three years from now, there is another election. Yes, yes, yeah, definitely. And if you think again about the Korean case, of course, there are municipal elections coming up uh, yeah. in, in June here in South Korea. So, you know, I don't want to say that having a, a summit with uh, Kim Jong-un is, uh, you know, in, in April is given by the date of the elections. But, you know, I can imagine that Munson administration will have that in mind while uh, talking uh, to the other side as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously we don't want to be too cynical and say that everything depends on wanting to win elections. But I think at the at the bottom level, we can maybe fairly say that for Kim Jong-un, elections don't play a part of right. his calculus and elections can play a part of Moon Jae-in's calculus and for Donald Trump's calculus. Yes. 
Uh, I mean, the US is a very good example too. Um, we will have midterm elections for the Congress coming up in November this year. Indeed, you know, bringing something positive on time before the elections, that's uh, going to be an important thing for him. That's right. Now, let me quote from you at the, the beginning of your uh, Seoul National University research proposal. You have a, uh, a, a long quote from Federica Mogherini, and I hope I've pronounced her name correctly. She's the high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. And at an address at the August 2017 EU Ambassadors Conference, she said, quote, We might be geographically far away from the Pacific, but all our Asian partners are all keen to have us, the European Union, involved in the solution of the crisis with North Korea, because they know that we will always look for a diplomatic solution, because we know that even thinking of a military solution to this kind of tension is not only dangerous, but it also does not solve the problem at all. They know that we will do all we can to find a mediation, that we will seek a multilateral solution, and they appreciate our expertise on non-proliferation, especially the one that we have gained through the negotiations with Iran." Unquote. So what can you tell us about this quote? Federica Mogherini, uh, the HRVP or uh, an EU's foreign minister, to put it uh, in simpler words, she was recalling her meetings from Manila earlier that year with uh, with uh, some other foreign ministers from ASEAN countries. If we place ourselves at that moment, right, it was summer last year. You know, the the positive mood which we have now since the Olympics mm-hmm. was not right. It was far from it our minds. Far, far from the minds, right? And the atmosphere was rather the opposite, right? Thinking yeah. well. You know, is there going to be any military confrontation on the Korean Peninsula? How this all going to affect the actress world and so on? In that atmosphere, uh, Mogherini was reminding that actually the EU is the one which always tries to pursue diplomatic route and 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 bring all the actors uh, to the table. Okay, so you're you're basically a, an EU positivist. You hope that the EU can do great things for the world. Yes, I am an EU enthusiast. Yes, an enthusiast. Okay, <laughs> true believer. So, how do you believe the EU can help North Korea? in practical ways through its various assets and experiences. The EU has uh, different tools and means and experiences that haven't been used before or or haven't been used on the Korean Peninsula before. There's uh, seven uh, EU member state uh, embassies on the ground in Pyongyang, Germany, Sweden and UK, and then four from the, the former Eastern Bloc countries. So my homeland, Czech Republic, has one, uh, Poland, uh, Bulgaria and Romania. Uh, and France also has a, has a strong presence there, although it's not at the level of... Uh, uh, embassy. You know, if you even think about quote of now former Secretary of State Tillerson uh, a few months ago mm-hmm. when he said that the US has only three channels of communication with North Korea, the EU has at least those seven, right? So even from that perspective, we actually have more more channels than actually the United States has. Okay, yeah, so different channels, but if the message is the same, then the increase in the number of channels, does that mean much? Well, uh, I mean, there's an attempt, of course, to send the same message, right? So mm-hmm. there is a, actually a to have one message rather than seven different ones. But uh, it's it also works uh, vice versa, right? So uh, North Korean government has seven channels to yeah. send messages back to Europe and uh, to the rest of the world, right? Uh, and of course, uh, the embassies also function as sort of, you know, information gathering mm-hmm. uh, places. So you always have different different information or different feeling about the country if you 
actually have someone on the ground. And as well as those uh, seven permanent uh, channels, you also have a multiple of uh, temporary channels. Whenever a EU embassy to South Korea sends somebody to Pyongyang, because there are some embassies in Seoul that are dual accredited, uh, and they go back and forth as well, don't they, carrying messages from their home countries? Right, indeed. I think there's 26 EU member states have diplomatic relations with North Korea. I would actually argue if, if you know, the situation goes uh, goes well ahead, that uh, firstly, maybe the accreditation could be more and more from Seoul rather than Beijing. That would send yeah. a signal. And the second aspect is, you know, if the EU actually gets involved more, it would make sense that it opens either embassy or some sort of a liaison office on the ground uh, in Pyongyang. For the Pyongyang. EU itself. For the EU itself. So mm-hmm. not just not just the EU member states. Well, now, we know that we see from uh, Ms. Mogherini's quote that the EU has a, an intention of, of becoming an important actor, uh, a security and a political actor in Northeast Asia, but we haven't seen that yet. Why is this? You know, EU foreign policy and policy making is always a uh, difficult nut to crack, uh, where you have at one level the EU representation uh, led by Federica Mogherini, but at the same time you have uh, all the EU member states. And to some extent, uh, she can't do anything which is not approved by the EU member states. It's just... So each one of them has to agree to any change in, in foreign policy? Yes. Uh, yeah, she can't suddenly come up with something out of blue and do it on her own. But maybe one thing I would like to point out this uh, recent flurry of activities that various uh, EU representatives have done all the actions taken between uh, the EU and uh, South Korean government. So maybe I, I'll start with the reverse order, and that's a visit of uh, Minister Kang, South Korean Minister of Foreign Affairs, mm-hmm. to Brussels on, uh, I believe, March 19th. She basically came to speak to all uh, 28 foreign ministers and Federica Mogherini during the so-called Foreign Affairs Council meeting. So that's a monthly meeting of all EU foreign ministers. And she basically talked about, you know, the current situation on the Korean peninsula. That's quite important because that has never happened before. So there's never been a South Korean foreign minister mm. attending this meeting. Did she ask the EU to take any specific action or take any specific stance? The South Korean government and administration in general is very supportive of uh, the EU's position on, on uh, the DPRK. Uh, so what is that at the moment? Well, the official uh, name is called critical engagement, and that goes quite hand in hand with with the Moon's uh, approach. Mm. So that means, you know, on one hand to put pressure on the DPRK to denuclearize, mainly through sanctions. But on the other hand, you know, this is just a tool, an instrument to achieve something. And the goal is to, goal is to have a negotiated peaceful solution on, on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah. You know, more or less reflects what, uh, what the South Korean government wants to do as well. So I think when Minister Khan came, came to Brussels, she just basically wanted, uh, first of all, inform. Uh, secondly, sort of, you know, t- to, to make sure that this, this policy continues across the board among all, all the EU member states, mm-hmm. not just at the EU level, but, but uh, within the member states as well. And I, I believe that the, the two ladies uh, in charge of foreign policy, Federica Mogherini and uh, Minister Kande, have quite a good personal 
chemistry. Okay. Sometimes more important uh, than we realize. So this visit was followed uh, then by a visit of uh, another lady, Helga Schmidt, who is uh, Secretary General of the EAS, European External Action Service. You know, European service like complicated acronyms. So that's basically an EU's diplomatic service. So, ah. you know, EU's top diplomat, so to speak, just below the foreign ministry. Okay. And she came, uh, I think, at the end of March. Uh, she came from Brussels um, here to Seoul, and she had all sorts of high-level meetings with uh, Vice uh, Foreign Minister Lim, with the Special Representative for for the Korean Peninsula, so Secretary to the President, uh, who, who who is Kwon, who is responsible for the, the two summits. Contacts were quite a high level, and I think she brought also the assurance that the EU is on on the South Korean side. Have there been any recent high-level meetings or contacts that we know of uh, between the EU and North Korea? Yes, indeed, there were, although there's not that much information what actually came out of them. The North Korean Foreign Ministry's Director General for European Affairs, Kim Song-yong, visited Brussels in, the, uh, in April, early April. So after South Korean Minister Gang's visit? Yes, yes, indeed, mm-hmm. indeed. You have also all these sort of not EU level but member state level contacts. The North Korean foreign minister, he spent uh, there uh, quite a long time, three, four days. He had several meetings with Swedish foreign minister Marco Wallström. I mean, Sweden is important. Right, they're part of the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission in the uh, in the demilitarized zone. Yes, yeah. indeed, indeed. Sweden also represents the interests of the United States in Pyongyang. Right, so they're the protecting power. So protecting sort of the substitute embassy for for the United States. And actually, this year, uh, Sweden is also a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. So that's an additional role. There have been some reports on this meeting that, you know, maybe uh, the discussions kind of stalled because there was a question whether the North Korean side would release some of the uh, American hostages. that, That probably didn't work. As far as I know, there was no official statement uh, out of that meeting, which is also uh, Mm. interesting. There were also some uh, 1.5 track meetings in in Finland just after the Sweden meetings, weren't there? But every nation I've talked to that was there, um, completely tight-lipped. In Europe right now, within the EU, how many uh, diplomatic offices does North Korea have and where are they? So the UK has got an embassy, Berlin's got an embassy... Uh, Czech Republic has actually a North Korean embassy okay. and, in fact, uh, Kim Jong-un's uncle, I believe. Oh, right. Uh, yes, of course. He, he's been a long time, almost, you might say, an ambassador in exile. Yes, he spent yes. over 20, 30 years. Uh, he, he, I don't know if he'll ever go home. He was the... Uh, let me get this right. He's the bro- the older brother... No, the younger brother of Kim Jong-il, am I yes, right? Yeah. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. And yes, uh, you know, the Czech Republic had still has some links uh, with, with North Korea, not just at a diplomatic level, but there are some students which go from the Czech Republic to North Korea, although I think this has also sort of stalled within the last few years, but, you know, still, let's say, five five years back. Are there any North Korean diplomats in Brussels, as far as we know, permanently there? Uh, no, well, I mentioned the uh, DPRK's embassy to uh, London. That's actually responsible also for Brussels. But they won't be for long, not after Brexit. In- indeed, indeed. So, you know, uh, actually, you know, one of one of the ideas uh, yeah. I would uh, I would have is you know to use the Brexit to say well you have to leave London so why don't you 
you know, come to Brussels. Come to Brussels, right. and of course, in exchange, uh, you know, we have to have uh, an EU representation in Pyongyang. Now, I know that Western Europe is very much averse to uh, military solutions, um, especially after World War II and the wars in the Balkans and the situation in Ukraine. But uh, how useful or relevant is that experience here in the Korean situation? You know, the EU actually has military presence across the world, but uh, that's usually focused on sort of civilian and, and military training and peacekeeping and things like that. So there's no there's no thinking that there could be an EU mission mm. uh, to the Korean Peninsula. I think the EU would be very strongly opposed to any military action here. Uh, if you think back about uh, experiences from the Iraq war, it split the, the EU member states in the middle. Yeah. So, you know, if, if there was a, such a situation, it could repeat itself here, although I think there would be much more, many more countries would actually oppose, uh, oppose any military intervention. U.S. President Donald Trump seems to be keen to have a deal brokered on the Korean Peninsula, uh, a deal which will safeguard U.S. security interests. But he doesn't seem to be very interested in the European Union playing a big role in all this. Certainly, he hasn't spoken about the European Union. So how can the EU insert itself into this process or dialogue? There will be a moment when you actually have to have more technical level discussions rather than just you know broader political talks. This is where the EU definitely has quite a lot of expertise. Also, if you think you know currently the United States administration is is in sort of disarray uh, when it comes to you know personal issues, the EU could uh, help there. You know, as I mentioned before, that the, uh, the the policies of the EU and South Korean government go sort of hand in hand. It's actually the South Koreans. Maybe who, who mm. may say, well, actually, it wouldn't be bad to have the EU on board. Have they said this uh, anything like this yet? When Minister Gang went to Brussels and talked with all the foreign ministers? It's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? Okay. So on one hand, the Europeans uh, keep saying, oh, we are here, we are supporting your policies. And they are sort of waiting to be asked to do something. At the same time, the South Koreans are like, oh, it's great that you are following, you know, what, what we want to do, yeah. that, that you are providing all the support. So what can you offer us? Uh-huh. So now this is, I think now it's the stage where both sides are kind of waiting for each other. Mm-hmm. I would, I would probably encourage the Europeans actually to take the initiative and you know to put on table some concrete proposals what they could do. Now I've had a number of guests on this podcast and in the real world who have said that it is quite likely President Trump's threat of the use of force that has moved North Korea to the negotiating table at this time. Would you agree with that? Well, I would preface my answer by saying that I am a big supporter of the United States and, you know, transatlantic relations, but at the same time, I'm not a very big fan of Donald Trump. At the same time, I must admit that probably his his actions or his words rather did actually have that impact to bring North Korea to the negotiating table and that I heard also from you know sources from within DPRK that mm. actually Kim Jong-un's government really got scared that Donald Trump might actually be the one who really uh, will start uh, the war or, or is willing to be involved in a war on the Korean Peninsula. You um, say you heard this from someone from the DPRK? Well, I wouldn't say directly from, but from someone who had talks with DPRK uh-huh. officials. You know, at the same time, one thing is to actually have a credible threat that brings someone to the negotiating table. And yeah. this, the second issue is to actually be willing to conduct that threat, right? And this is uh, one, one aspect where I'm not too sure that US policies are right. 
I think that's part of the success is that President Trump has kept us all guessing, right? That nobody knows, will he, won't he, will he, won't he, right? That without having to do anything, you can force your counterpart to respond. Uh, you also talk in your research proposal about the European Union having a potential mitigating effect on the Trump administration's hardline approach by teaming up with other actors. And the example you give of one such other actor is the United States Congress. Now, that sounds both provocative and subversive. Can you tell me more? There are various issues on transatlantic agenda. It's not just uh, North Korea, but it's also trade. It's also Iran deal. And I could probably name a few other issues. And so far, the Europeans, their approach is, well, you know, it's not just Donald Trump who who conducts uh, EU, uh, US foreign policy, but it's also the other actors. So the EU was quite keen on discussing things with Vice President Pence. And it has been also quite keen on having as many contacts with uh, congressmen as possible. Of course, we will see what's going to happen in early May. But so far, for example, the Iran nuclear deal holds. I think one of the reasons why it does is the pressure by the European side. The second aspect of it, it's not just because of talking to Donald Trump, but it's also because of talking to Congress, for example. You know, if, if there is uh, any move towards, you know, use, use of force on the Korean Peninsula, this yeah. is probably where the Europeans could also try to, uh, you know, influence uh, American actors. Okay. Now, you, you also talk in your uh, proposal about outside-the-box tools that the EU might be able to upload to solve the North Korean crisis. One of those tools you suggested was uh, uh, being an honest broker. If the European Union has already stated to the South Korean foreign minister, we're on your side, we're with you, how can they still be an honest broker? You know, unilateralism versus bilateralism. Now, North Korea often likes to talk to other states bilaterally, trying to uh, work out a one-on-one -on -one deal with the United States or a one-on-one -on -one deal with China or a one-on-one -on -one deal with, with the South Korea. So do you think that bilateralism works well for North Korea or would multilateralism be a better strategy in the long run? Well, the bilateralism works quite well for North Korea because, uh, you know, there's always a tendency to sort of divide and rule, right? Yeah. But if there is any international deal in the end worked out, uh, it has to stick. And that means that all the parties have to be somehow involved. So mm -hmm. again, to bring uh, the case of the Iran deal, although I don't want to say, you know, that the situation in Iran and North Korea is the same, but actually the deal is not just between the parties. So it's actually the six parties with the EU as the seventh party in the middle. Uh -huh. Right. So again, you know, parallel to six-party talks, but it's also embedded within uh, within the UN uh, through a UN resolution. So in a way, it is multilateral deal, not just between the actors involved, but globally. So if there is in the end solution of this kind for North Korea or for the Korean Peninsula, the only way is actually the multilateral way. Mm -hmm. And we also shouldn't forget uh, the is issue of sanctions. So of course, on one hand, you have an extensive range of sanctions imposed on. North Korea through the UN, but also individually. So the EU has yeah. actually the most restrictive sanction regime on North Korea. But if there is any deal, you have to also de-sanction, right? Uh, the EU has its own sets of set of sanctions yeah. on, on the DP, DPRK, and it's quite good in, in enforcing the UN sanctions as well. And in fact, uh, the EU has been demarching other third countries to apply the sanctions. Mm -hmm. So it's an additional pressure. So I think that's also one of the aspects the South Korean and the US government appreciate on the EU's role, it's been able to bring the sanctions to be implemented and to, to you know to convince other partners to implement them. What would be what preconditions are there on the EU removing any of its unilateral sanctions? 
Well, the, the procedure, I think, is quite straightforward. So, you know, once the EU agrees on, on the list of sanctions, there's a sort of internal um, EU procedure, and then you just need the same procedure to remove them. So it's not too complex. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably easier than, say, the US sanctions. There will also have to be some sort of, you know, international agreement, how to do it, and, and uh, you know, step-by-step yes. um, process. This is, I think, where the EU also can provide its expertise. I want to spend the last few minutes with you today, Teresa, talking about parallels between between life in North Korea today and life behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe before the changes of uh, 20 plus years, right. 25 plus years ago. Because I know that's also an area of interest for you, isn't it? Just ordinary everyday life in North Korea and how it was uh, in Eastern Europe. So can you tell us a bit about that? definitely something which really interests me, especially after visiting North Korea. You know, if I think back about my trip, you know, for me, it was like a combination of the 1950s and 1980s in Czechoslovakia with all the propaganda posters, mm-hmm. the uh, the Kim's statues and so on. So that's, you know, that that period. But at the same time, if you if you look at what has been going on, especially uh, in the last few years, in terms of economy, the gray market or black market economy, the flow of information, you know, if you listen to some um, discussions by North Korean refugees, uh, how they talk about, especially the most recent periods, that's what's been had in Czechoslovakia in the 1980s. So that's really interesting for me to see. So have you seen much evidence that people in North Korea are listening to South Korean pop music or watching South Korean films and dramas? Well, you know, when I went there, I didn't have that much chance to actually uh, talk to ordinary North Koreans. But uh, I I remember, for example, you know, chatting with one of the minders and asking him, oh, what was your favorite non-North Korean movie and he was like oh Titanic that struck me as as you know one of the things we used to do in 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 the 1980s I remember as a little girl going to watch uh, western films and uh, Disney at a friend's house and you know that was like a secret uh, session for us so yeah so, contraband Disney yes indeed so yeah there, there are definitely these, these parallels I can see but uh, the film Titanic I mean is it, maybe that was one that people are allowed to watch in North Korea. I mean, there are some Western films, and I think uh, Gone with the Wind, I'm not sure if I'm thinking about the film or the novel, but I know that there are some uh, Western films and non-North Korean films. Uh, at one of my recent podcasts, I was talking to uh, Ayesha from India, who said that there was a Bollywood film that was hugely popular uh, in North Korea. I can't remember what the name of it was, but she said everyone, when they found out she was from India, they wanted to talk to her about this film. Or if 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 your minder was a student at the University of Foreign Languages, that there, there might be a small library of DVDs there that they're allowed to watch. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That may be in there. And Titanic is perhaps deemed to be unpolitical enough that it's on the approved list. Although you know, of course, it's about love between two people, not between the people right. and, and the leader, right? So you know, you could see that there are some subversive uh, aspects to that film as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Do you have any final ideas or thoughts for us? I think uh, you know, as f- fingers fingers crossed that all all the all the upcoming negotiations and summits go well ahead. Yeah. You know, if if the EU can play any role, can help, that would be great. But of course, you know, if if everyone else can solve uh, the problem without the European uh-huh. participation, I think Europeans will be as happy. <laughs> you don't mind if they go ahead without you? Yes. And make peace. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you once again to this week's studio guest, Dr. Teresa Novotna, for coming on the NK News podcast. You can find her on Twitter at 
at Teresa A. Novotna, T-E-R-E-Z-A-N-O-V-O-T-N-A. Did I get that right? Yes, yes. This is the first Twitter account that I've ever mentioned on this podcast, but probably not the last. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean news, research, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcasts at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by brand new father Arius Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee of NK News. Lastly, a reminder that you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. And listen to us again next time. Thank you for listening. <laughs>